Hello, and welcome to Essential Insights, a podcast for healthcare professionals. My name is Sydney, and I am the program coordinator for the Hospice and Home Care Webinar Network. Today, we are talking about IgG meetings and the importance of holistic interdisciplinary care models. Our speaker today is Gary Guardia. He is the Executive Director of the Advanced Palliative Hospice Social Work Certification Organization. He holds master's degrees in both education and social work and is a licensed clinical social worker. He began his hospice career as a volunteer and has dedicated his life to providing quality end-of-life care to people and their families and to providing quality education and expert advice to the caregivers. Gary is a frequent presenter for us, and he will be presenting on this very topic in depth on October 1st. More info on the upcoming IDG webinar and how to register can be found in the podcast notes. So without further ado, let's jump right into this critical topic. Gary, I'm turning it over to you. Thank you very much, Sydney. Um, I, you know, I have to say I really like this topic, and it's nice that we can do podcasts where we can sort of go over a topic briefly, but then you know that a more in-depth conversation is coming up, and to me, this kind of just feels like we're sitting around chatting, so I hope it feels that way to you. So. The topic that, you know, for me is truly at the heart of the work that we do is interdisciplinary care. So I just, I, I just want to do my spiel here and, and get on my soapbox. You know, early on, um, when the pioneers of the hospice movement were thinking about, you know, hospice, you know, what they did was they were looking around and, and said, there's got to be a better way to take care of people who are dying. You know, it's it, it, it was the, the, the liver in bed 234. We looked at people as their body parts and we looked at people as an isolated being in a bed on a ward. And you know, we looked at the medical chart and we were trying to figure out how to fix the liver. And, you know, even very recently, I was visiting a friend in a hospital. This was a year ago. And I, I, I said, how are things going? And she said, I wish people would see me as more than my liver. Coincidentally, it was her liver as well that was the problem. She said, I wish people would look at, see me as more than just my liver, my body. There's other things going on with my body. And she was still focused on her body. You know, I wish they would see that there are other things happening with me. Um, but it, she still wasn't thinking about being a, a human being in the bed. And so that still happens. That still happens in healthcare these days. You know, I, my feeling is that it's not just still happening, it's getting worse. And I think it's happening in hospice care as well, where we're getting sucked back into the medical model. And there's lots of reasons for it. Um, gosh, we could talk about just that topic all day long. But, but, but when the pioneers of the hospice movement were coming up with you know, they, they sat down and said, let's dream. What would ideal care look like? What would be the best possible care for people who are seriously ill and members of, of their circles of support? What would the best possible care look like? And they came up with the hospice model. 
In essence, at the heart of this lies just two things, two things that makes us different from everybody else. And that is um, we are we we take a holistic approach, which means we're not just looking at a person's biology, although that's important. Well, actually, each aspect is important. Each aspect should be equally important. So not just their biology, but their psychology, their emotions, their social aspects of who they are, and their spiritual aspects. And I always kind of hate that spiritual is last, but maybe we put it last because it's most important. Spirituality just meaning what is the, or not just meaning, but this is kind of my summary of that, that uh, what does all of this mean? What kind of meaning do you give to life? to your existence in the world, to the world itself? What, what is the meaning that you give to all of that? It could be religious. Somebody might use the word spiritual. It could, you know, wh- however somebody might define that. So it's huge. But at the end of life or when people are seriously ill, I think um, we need to give a little bit more attention to meaning. What does all of this mean? Certainly in bereavement programs, they're now looking at uh bereavement counseling through the lens of what does this mean to you? What does the loss of your husband mean to you? The death of your husband or the death of whomever it might be. Let's start with what it means. Instead of, you know, starting with sadness, start, let's start with the whole notion of meaning. So, you know, I, I think what happens is we get people onto hospice programs. Now we're right back to, What's your pain? What are your symptoms? Like, let's get that in, under control first. When in truth, we know many, many people who would say, leave my body alone. I, you know, I'm going to be dead in a few days and I have a wife and kids. I don't know what to do. Or, you know, that, that the other aspects are much more excruciating for them than whatever's happening with their body. But we're set up now to give so much attention to the physical. Hopefully that's that's not the case where you're working. Hopefully, you know, at the time of admission, if you know that this family is in extreme distress, that a social worker chaplain is notified and they go notified and they go out that day. You know, if if we were notified on the day of admission that a person was in serious pain, certainly a nurse would go out that day. Um, we should we should have the availability and the readiness to send a chaplain social worker out on the day of admission if we find out that the family is in extreme distress. But let me tell you this, most programs aren't set up that way. So let's just look at a couple definitions. There's certainly the medical model of care, and I define the medical model as diagnose and treat. What we do is, we it's not just about looking at the body, the model is that we go out We diagnose people's problems, and then we come up with a plan to treat it. So if I'm in an emergency room, that's exactly what I want someone to do. You know, I've I've been in an accident. I want somebody to look at my body, diagnose the problems, and treat it immediately. The medical model is perfect for the emergency room. But is that the right model in hospice care? Should we be going out and diagnosing people's problems and then coming up with a plan to treat them? It's it's problem-focused care. 
when people are dying, you know, it's important, I think, that we do that on some level. Certainly, I think many people would say, I want you to come out and figure out what the problems are and treat them. But at the end of life, there's so much more that we could be doing for people. If we get locked into that problem-solving mode, we miss opportunities. We miss the opportunity for people to have a better experience than they would have without us. So if what you want is the problem-focused model, the medical model, go to the hospital and die. That's where most people in the country do die, in the hospital or in a nursing home or in some other type of care where the medical model is prevalent. In hospice, that isn't who we are. It's not what we say we are. It's not what we promise people. We're going to come out. You come on to hospice. We're, you, we're going to go out. We're going to diagnose your problems. We're going to treat your problems, um, whether you want us to or not. And, and that's hospice care. It isn't. It, it's not what it is. So we, we, we're guided by the holistic approach to care, biopsychosocial, spiritual. And we provide that care through an interdisciplinary team. So let me just read a brief definition. An interdisciplinary approach relies on health professionals from different disciplines, along with the person who is ill and members of their circle of support, working collaboratively as a team. The most effective teams share responsibilities and promote role interdependence while respecting individual members' experience and autonomy. So essentially what it is, if, if let's say that we go out and what the family says is most important to them at this moment is that the person who is ill is in pain, we say, okay, let's, let's get together as a team and see what's going on. So an example I use is the person who is in pain, the patient is in pain and says, yes, I'm in pain. Yes, it's serious pain, but I don't want to take narcotics. So it's not up to just one discipline to work through that. As a social worker, I have counseling skills. I have a vast area of knowledge that I can apply to this situation to, to sit down with, with this family system and say, what's going on? You know, you don't have to take narcotics. Just because we think that might be the best choice for you, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And it's absolutely okay, but let's figure out what's going on. Let's see what's happening here. Let's see, you know, maybe you're afraid of narcotics because somebody else said, I loved one who went on to hospice. They took narcotics and died instantly. Maybe, maybe that's your concern. Maybe you have a history of addiction and you've been sober for however many years and you don't want to go back to the drug that has been so difficult for you in your life. Or, or it could be anything. It could be a religious or cultural belief. It could, it, it, is the chaplain involved in these conversations? So, when we, when we just give the problem of pain management to one discipline to solve, we're not doing hospice care. It's, it's not hospice care at all. So then there's multidisciplinary care, and that's an approach that involves disciplines working 
independently. So you have the nurse, you have the social worker, you have the chaplain, you have the nursing assistant, you have volunteers, you have bereavements, you have all the other people as members of the team, but they're all doing their own thing. So let me just tell you briefly, when we're using the medical model, multidisciplinary approach to care, it looks like this. We go out, each discipline diagnoses the problems based on um, their discipline or their specific discipline approach. So as a social worker, I go out and diagnose the psychological, social, emotional problems. So I'm looking at just that. I determine what their problems are. Then I come up with a treatment plan to treat those problems. And so what I'm doing is now medical model, multidisciplinary care. And then I go to team meeting. I report what the problems I decided are, what the problems are that I decided should be or that I've noticed. I, I, I talk about what my, my treatment plan is, and I then discuss any kind of progress made on that plan. Then the nurse talks about their plan, the problems they diagnosed, and what the treatment plan is. The chaplain says, well, these are the problems I diagnosed. <coughs> and it goes from there. That is medical model, multidisciplinary care. It is what we, try, we have tried to get away from when we started hospice care. It's not who we are. So, you know, we could talk about this topic forever, and I would love to talk about it forever. And we are going to be doing a follow-up webinar that I would encourage you to attend. But I have to say, we can be so, we can and should be so much more than that. So when we're talking about IDG, I use interdisciplinary group IDG to talk about essentially team meeting. Interdisciplinary care is the care that we provide, but Medicare uses IDG, so I use that as well. How do we get there? How do we get to providing true hospice care? It, it really means we have to be disciplined about our approach, but first we have to be knowledgeable about our approach. Do, do, do we even know when we're not in the zone? You know, I, I think most hospice programs out there aren't even aware. We use the words. We say we're interdisciplinary. Most people are not. I, I would be willing to bet that 90% of the programs in this country are not doing interdisciplinary care. And I base that on the many years that I have spent traveling around the country doing consulting for hospice programs, providing workshops at state and national conferences. And I always ask the question, tell me what your care looks like. And almost always people describe medical model, multidisciplinary care, and they don't know that that's what it is. They just, you know, we're kind of out of touch. And we say, but we're compliant. We're compliant with Medicare regulations. Uh, I, I think there's, we can be compliant and not be providing exceptional care. Maybe your care is good. And maybe it's all that people want. Maybe people aren't complaining. I, I do think that when we send out family satisfaction surveys, 
um, people don't know that it could have been better. So was the care good? Well, sure, the nurse was really nice and very attentive. Okay, that's good, but that's that. Uh, we should all be nice and attentive, shouldn't we? Shouldn't every member of the team be at least nice and attentive? That doesn't mean the care was good. That doesn't mean it was great hospice care. I, you know, I think family satisfaction surveys should be one way we use to, to judge how we're doing, but it shouldn't be the only way because people don't know that things could have been better. We do. We know things could have been better. I'm, I hope we do <laughs> in those situations. So, you know, it really does become a challenge. I think the trend I see happening most nationally is the pull towards medical model, multidisciplinary care. And once again, you can get that in the hospital. You can get that in a, you know, a nursing facility. You can get that in group homes, wherever else care might be provided. You don't need hospice for that. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and, you know, I, I have to say anybody can do pain management. Anybody can do great pain management. Hopefully that's what's happening in hospital settings. I hope they're doing great pain management there. We don't own that. We're not the owners of pain and symptom management, um, but we do own exceptional hospice care. And I think, I think we just sort of, as providers of care, have lost sight of that. And, and we all know there's lots of reasons for it. There's all of the regulations. We're just, you know, I call it compliance obsessed. We, we become obsessed with compliance and forget that being compliant doesn't necessarily mean high quality exceptional care. So that's kind of definitions. You know, just does your, let me just ask this question. Does your organization even know the difference between interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary? Do they know what those differences are? Are, and are they clear about uh, where you lie on the spectrum of multidisciplinary care and interdisciplinary? There's unidisciplinary care, which means just one discipline goes out and takes on the care. You, I, I know that you have multiple disciplines, um, but that's probably or maybe not. You're not operating in an interdisciplinary fashion. Maybe you are, maybe not. We'll talk more about that in the webinar and kind of what all of that means. So um, let, let's just take a look at the application of kind of those definitions to how teams function. And what are some of the challenges? What are some of the challenges you might be facing? One of the things is interdisciplinary care is really about how teams function. And it takes buy-in from all of the team members. So all of the team members need to know what interdisciplinary care is or interdisciplinary team functioning is. They need to know what it is. They need to know how to do it. So let me just back up a second and go to the team meeting. So you, I'm guessing that you have an interdisciplinary group meeting once a week at least. You have at least that. That's required by Medicare. Um, and in that team meeting, I believe, is where most of us learn how to operate. 
Are you going to be operating in isolation or are you going to be operating as a team? And we learn, we should be learning how to do that in the team meeting. And so what I see most often as I travel around the country, which I, of course, I'm not doing right now, but when I have traveled around the country in the past, what I have seen most often in team meetings, and it's just so consistent is we start the meeting with a medical report. And so one of the rules I just sort of use all the time is stop reporting. You know, what is the point of getting everybody around a table to listen to one report after another report after another report when everybody's sitting there saying, I wish I was out of this room. I wish I was doing anything but this. Reporting doesn't get us anywhere. You know, it's, you know, every once in a while, um, people say something that's very helpful. Oh, I'm glad I know this so that when I go out to my next visit, I have that in mind. But on the other hand, a lot of reporting colors or um, biases our approach. So, Somebody says, this family is difficult. And I kind of put that in the back of my mind. I go out for my visit thinking this is going to be a difficult family. And so I'm already prepared for that. I've got a bias going on so that when I see different things, I'm looking at it through the lens of, oh, there it is. There's that difficult stuff. So I already have judgments in place. If it were up to me, in team meeting, we would absolutely ban certain words. We would say these are words that cannot be spoken inside of our facility, let alone inside of a team meeting. But we don't call families difficult. We don't call individuals difficult. We don't call them non-compliant. We never use the word denial. People are in denial. And we don't use those words because they don't mean anything. They don't they they, they mean nothing and they bias team members when they go out for their next visit. So, you know, I did a webinar. Um, it's available through Hospice Home Care ne Webinar Network. I did one recently on denial. And so we just spent the whole hour and a half talking just about denial. And the problem with the word is it, it might be denial. It might not be. There's four levels of denial. So it might be a kind of one kind of denial and not another kind of denial. It might be, I'm not in denial. I just don't like you. You know, I just don't like the team member that's in front of me and I don't want to talk to them, but I know I'm dying. I just don't want to share that with you. So whatever it might, whatever it is, denial is an example of a word that means nothing when we say it. it, it and it might not even be accurate or it might be accurate one moment and and 10 minutes later it's no longer accurate when i said to you i'm not dying it brought something up for me so that after you left i had to really look at that well am i maybe i am dying and so by the time you come out you now have all the other team members thinking i'm in denial and i'm not anymore you know it's they're biased highly charged words that um, are destructive, I think. 
So saying someone is difficult, well, they might be for you, or maybe you just don't have the skills to deal with this type of personality, or it's a personality that pushes your buttons, but it doesn't push my buttons. Do you know what I mean? Difficult is another word. This is, this is, so if we're talking about the word difficult, non-compliant, and denial, there's a lot of other words we shouldn't be using as well, but let's just do those three. As far as I'm concerned, each of those words means the person who spoke them is lacking certain skills. They're probably lacking some level of personal professional insight, and they're also lacking some critical skills that we should have in end-of-life care. So that when we say this person or family is non-compliant, it just means we have the wrong plan. It's our plan, not theirs. They're oper- they are, people operate off of their own plan. They always do. They always will. You do. When you go through life, you have a plan and you operate off of that plan. So if somebody comes into your life and says, I don't think you should have this plan. I think you should have a different plan. And we do that to people we love all the time, don't we? Don't we? Don't parents constantly say to their kids, you shouldn't be thinking this way. You should be thinking that way. Even adult kids. We do it with our siblings and families. We do it with our friends. Why are you staying with that person? You should leave them. They have their plan. We like to say we, we have a plan for you that if you followed, your life would be great. But I don't have to follow your plan. I don't have to follow your plan as a, as a, when I'm on hospice care. And I don't have to follow your plan if you're my friend. I have my own plans. And so when we say that someone is noncompliant, it, it just, means we are operating on plan and that needs to change we need to change our plan it's not them they're not the problem we are so i like to say people can do whatever they want to do and they will Um, when they're on hospice care they can do whatever they want to do choose choose whatever you want now some choices all choices have consequences but some choices might have negative consequences, meaning I want hospice care. Here's an example. I want hospice care, but I don't want the nurse to come. The nurse can come once a month, but that's all. Well, great. You can choose that. That's absolutely up to you, but that means you can't have hospice care. So if you say you want hospice care, you can't say the nurse can only come once a month because there are some rules and regulations. So you have to let the nurse in or you can't have hospice care, but make your choice. It's up to you. We we don't need to say they're difficult. We don't need to try to bully them. We just need to present them with their options. We need to do informed consent. So if you want hospice care, let me just tell you kind of what the rules are. There are some rules. Um, We don't make them all. You know, if they're up to me, the nurse would come once a month. Great. That's that's fine with me. But there are regulations in place. You have Medicare as your payment provider. So according to Medicare, here are what the rules are. So now what do you want? All we have to do is present people with their options and let them choose. But people get to have whatever they want. So one of the challenges with, <coughs> excuse me, one of the challenges with um, interdisciplinary care and team meeting, when we start to break off, it's so easy for one member of the team to get 
charged up and say, but this is what should be happening with this family. I think anytime we use the word should, we should stand back and say, wait a minute. (laughs) People get to have whatever they want. They can have this the way they want. And so when we have a group sitting around together in team meetings saying, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this as a team and get lots of different perspectives. Somebody might say, I didn't have that experience. That's, that's not the experience I had. Or I have more information than you have. And so let's, let's talk about this, you know, from the perspective of history that I got that you, you weren't able to get when you visited or whatever it is. So, you know, going back to team meeting, a true interdisciplinary team meeting is composed of people who get it. Really, they're in the room um, because they know what an interdisciplinary team meeting is and, and they get it. They're bought into it. So some of the obstacles that team member that says, I don't want to work as a team. Let me just go out, make my visits, do my plans of care, and I'll go sit in the team meeting and take notes, you know, and make my grocery list and whatever, you know, do my documentation, whatever it is but I don't want to function as a member of a team. In hospice care, that's, that should not be allowed that's because that's not who we are. That's not what we do. That's not what hospice care is. It would be like, I guess, going to work at McDonald's and say, I don't want, I don't want to make hamburgers. I want to make burritos. And I don't like making hamburgers. I've always hated hamburgers, so I'm going to make burritos. You can't do that at McDonald's. If you're going to go to McDonald's, you have to make hamburgers. <clears throat> and so that's how I feel about hospice care. If you're going to go to hospice care, you have to do hospice work. You have to follow the rules of hospice care and working in isolation is not it. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. So, you know, in, in kind of, again, obstacles and challenges, when we change team members, somebody quits and we have to replace them with somebody else. They have to be trained. They have to know what interdisciplinary team functioning is, how that looks, and how it works. The emphasis, um, that, well, there, there's this other issue that we see. Um, it's been in hospice care as long as I've been doing hospice work for 30, now going on 37 years, I think. Um, one of the challenges is this. We, we say no member of the team carries more weight than another member of the team. That essentially the only per, the, 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 the actual person in charge is the person who is ill and their family or members of their support circles. Those are the people in charge. We are there to provide care to them at their direction, essentially at their direction has to include informed consent and direction, but anyway, we serve at their direction. But there is a hierarchy in healthcare. Uh, We all know what it is. I I think if I took 2,000 people, put them in a room and say, here are all the the people on the team, Um, list them in order of importance or perceived importance, I think we'd probably all come up with the same list. Where would volunteer? Here's an example. Where would volunteers be? I'm pretty sure volunteers would be at the very bottom on, of of most people's lists if they are being honest. 
you know, if, if I said list them in orders of perceived importance, um, I think volunteers would be, and I started as a volunteer. I was a volunteer director for many years. I was the volunteer, volunteer manager, section leader for NHPCO. I am passionate about volunteers and I know what I see. You know, I know how in most organizations, how, how people view volunteers. They, vol- they don't see them as an equal member of the team. They see them as a, a nice addition to the care that the team provides, which is, again, that's not hospice care. It's not who we say we are. Um, it, it's not consistent with our values. But, but kind of who we say we are is not where we've landed these days. So we have, you know, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's a great conversation. We have a lot of work to do, but we will always have a lot of work to do. And that's a good thing. When we stop having work to do, it means we probably don't have hospice anymore. So it's a good thing. But there is a hierarchy. And I think we always need to keep that in mind, especially in team meeting. How much of team meeting is spent talking about the medical needs of the, of the person who is ill? And, and then the most important question is why? Why is that the case? You know, in so many situations, and you all know this, for many families, it's the fact that the person's dying. That's, that's the big issue, not what's happening to their body. The, honestly, what's happening to their body is sort of a, you know, a less important thing. Yes, get the pain and symptoms under control. Sure, go do that. But he's dying. You know, <laughs> what does that mean to this person? What does it mean to the family? How how do we go about dealing with that? Um, how do we prepare for a good death as they define good death? So, you know, how much time are we spending actually assisting people to have their best possible death experience? In in my years of experience, we tend to just hope that that happens. You know, we're not always guiding and directing and coaching and planning with people on how to have a good time of death. And when I when I use that word, I would never use that word with them. I would never call it a good death um, at the bedside. I'm talking to you all, and with you all, I can use the, the term of death because you all know what that means. Um, but with with family members, there need to be conversations about when the time comes. How do you want that to look? You know, who do you want to be there? Would you like music playing? Would that be nice? Would you have like a candle lit? Would you like scripture read? You know, what What would make that time meaningful for you? Because we know that when people say when he died, it was so incredible. It was such a special moment. Those people are going to recover better than the people who say it was horrible. He started to bleed out and there was, you know, somebody in the room was screaming or whatever, because we've all seen those deaths, too. They're going to have a much harder time. So shouldn't we be playing a role in in doing our best to focus on that and those kinds of things? It, quite honestly, I think pain and symptom management is important, but it's not the most important thing. Yet in most hospice programs, it's where we spend the most time. <coughs> Sorry, I have a little sore throat. 
So, you know, it's, it's about what is true holistic care. What is, what does that really mean? And, and what does it provided by an interdisciplinary team? What does that mean? I, I think we just all need to stop what we're doing for a minute, stand back and say, what are we doing here? You know, we know what Medicare says we should be doing. We're obsessed with that. We talk about it all day long and we spend a lot of time talking about it. But what is what is caring for people who are dying actually mean to you and to your organization? And is it just about through the hoops and going out and diagnosing people's problems and coming up with our care plans and then going to a meeting and reporting. And is it, is that it? Or is, is there something different we could be doing? You know, these are people's last days on earth. It's their last experience on earth. It's, it's an experience that's going to move family members forward in life. In a in a way that has some meaning or not, you know, we, we, this isn't, this isn't McDonald's. It's not going and getting a hamburger and saying, I didn't like the way my hamburger was cooked. And then, so we go to Burger King. This isn't that. This is truly, truly important work that we're doing. And it can't just be, you know, the liver in bed 232. It can't just be um, a bunch of regulations. It's got to have meaning and purpose, or I think we should be doing something different. So we know what kind of the challenges are. The models we use to approach the work that we do. The first one is, as I've said, it's the biopsychosocial spiritual model. So we know what the biological part is. But, you know, when we're talking about psychology, we're talking about the, a person's psychological health and wellness or, or where I, – I, I think we've all met people who life has been kind to. Life has not been so kind to. It's important we know that. You know, it's important that we know who are you in terms of your life experiences. As you have worked through problems in your life, what has worked for you? What, what things have you done in the past that have helped you get through difficult times in your life? And what have you done that has been counterproductive? And that we take that information into the moment and assist people to maximize, you know, the, the things that they have used that have worked for them. And we have to know what that is. What things have, have happened to you in your life that have provided meaning and what things have happened to you in your life that are going to be difficult for you now? It, you know, I can't say enough. I have been with people, and you have all too, who are bleeding inside. You know, they are in excruciating pain inside and bleeding because of psychological wounds. And then I'll look at a chart to see what the team has done. And I see the words emotional support. And I think, you've got to be kidding me. This person, it's like saying, you know, a person has a pain on a level of 
on a, the scale from one to 10, they say their pain is at a 10. And we say, well, would you like an aspirin? You know, it's, we wouldn't do that. In most cases, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't treat a level, a pain at a level 10 with an aspirin. Um, why would we ever approach someone who is in excruciating uh, psychological, emotional, spiritual distress and document we provided emotional support. It's it, what are the skills we need to have in that moment? So I, I think because we have spent so much time and there's so much research and constant research about pain management and symptom management, and I'm glad that there is, I'm glad that there is. Where are the skills for psychological, social, and spiritual distress? You know, I often will say to people, you know, what theoretical frameworks are you using to provide counseling? And they don't know. There's lots of information out there, but they can't tell me. You know, they can't tell me what approach they're using based on sound research and evidence that they use when people are in distress. So, um, again, we'll be talking quite a bit about that in the web webinar. We're going to be looking at the... Uh, the person-centered model and what that really means. So I, I think person-centered is kind of at the heart of getting away from the medical model. It, when I, again, please be clear, when I say medical model, I'm not talking about care provided by doctors and nurses. That's, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm just talking about the model of diagnose and treat that we go out and we say that we're going to diagnose people's problems and then come up with a treatment plan. That's how I define medical model. So a person-centered model is exactly opposite of that. We go out and we say, who are you? And what's most important to you? And we know a lot about, we have a lot of information about what has been helpful to other people. It may or may not be helpful to you, but let's talk. Let's Let's see if I know something that might be helpful for you. You have to tell me who you are and where you've been in life. And let's figure this out together. Instead of going out with an agenda, I have to diagnose your problems and come up with a treatment plan. You know, it's, it's more about, you know, someone's dying here. Who are you and what's, where do you want to go? And let's see if we can help you get there. Um, that's, you know, my summary of the person model, person-centered model. It's bigger than that, of course. Uh, but we'll be looking at what that means. And, and it, you know, I have to say, it's about what all of this means to you. So if you are sitting here listening to this, what, what does hospice care mean to you? I, we have what the organization is telling us, and we have what Medicare is telling us, and but at the end of the day, we're the ones sitting at the bedsides of people who are dying, people who are in their last days on earth. And, and what does that mean to you? What does that mean for who you are? I, I have met, and you all have to, I've met people in my years of work who shut down, essentially. They're going through the motions. They go out and visit people, never get really too connected to people don't really care. They hear somebody died and okay, well, who's next? And it becomes kind of this cold 
numbers game. And I get, let me tell you, I have been there myself. It's not something other people do. I absolutely get it. And it's been sort of a self-protection in my case. And I, 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 maybe we all get there at some point. But, but what I'm asking you right now is what does this work mean to you? And how do we hang on to the spirit of the hospice movement, which is if this were your loved one, if this were the person you loved most on a hospice program, how would you want them cared for? How would you want the team members to be there for you and the rest of the people in your family? Uh, it needs to be that important. It needs to be that important to each of us at every step of the way, truly. Um, we need to find a way to make sure that with every single person that we see, we stop before we walk through the door and say, if this were my loved one in that bed or in that room or in that house, how would I want them cared for? If my loved one was having a bad day, I wouldn't want people going back and calling him difficult. He's having a bad day. He's not a difficult person. He's dying. He's a dying person. And so that's kind of in this webinar coming up, what we're going to be talking about. But I'm going to be spending much more time talking about the skills that we use and, and getting much more detailed about this topic. Um, as you can see, I am passionate about holistic interdisciplinary care. I love what it is. I love what it can accomplish. Um, it's so, so important to me, it's, and it's critical to the hospice movement. Um, if we're going to hang on to hospice care, we need to every single day be asking ourselves the question, are we holistic and are we interdisciplinary and how can we do better at that? So thank you all very much. We're going to be we'll, in our webinar. We'll be having time for questions and answers and responses and for you to share your comments and thoughts. And I really um, am hoping that this webinar is, is as much about discussion, a discussion of these issues, as it is me just sitting and rambling for the whole hour and a half, which I promise I won't do. We'll save plenty of time for discussion. So come join us. Uh, it's a fun topic, and um, I hope you enjoy this topic as much as I do. Thank you, Gary. We loved having you on the podcast today, and we're very excited for your upcoming webinar. For our listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to check out the upcoming IDG webinar titled IDG Meetings, Effective Problem Solving with Shared Responsibility by using the links in the podcast notes. And don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast app and follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook for the next episode of Essential Insights. I would also like to thank our state association partners and you, the listener, the essential worker. Thank you for all that you do for the healthcare community. Be safe and take care.